was Palm Sunday, which is the day that Christ entered into Jerusalem. And we know that as he entered Jerusalem, there was a, a great triumphal entry where the people shouted, Hosanna. And they appeared to be ready to make him king. And yet, by the end of the week, he was crucified at their request. But before he was crucified, he celebrated the Lord's Supper. He celebrated Passover with his disciples. And before he celebrated the Passover, he says in Luke 22:15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so even as he entered into Jerusalem, he knew what would happen, and he was looking forward to this celebration. It was here that he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. So I want to uh, turn our attention to this topic of the Lord's Supper. It's something that is a regular part of our life here in the church. If you were to spend 50 years in our church, you would celebrate the Lord's Supper over or near 600 times. But do you know what it means? Do you know why we do it? Do you know its significance and how to participate in a right way? That's what we want to look at this morning so that when we come to the Lord's table, it's not a mere ritual, but it is in a very real way a meeting and remembrance of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do this morning. To begin, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read beginning in verse 17. And let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Our great God, we come before you and we beg that you would meet us now. That we would be able, even now, as your word is opened, to eat and to drink. That we would be satisfied by the goodness of our Savior. And that we would see how unsatisfying, how fleeting are the pleasures of this world. And as we look at the Lord's Supper and examine what it means, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to partake in it rightly, that your name would be glorified and that we would be blessed. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Before we begin looking at communion, I want to point out that the Lord's Supper has many different names. You probably know this. All of them are referring to the same ordinance. We'll sometimes call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, the Fellowship of the Table, the Eucharist, and the Breaking of Bread, and they can all refer to the same thing. Now, the Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which means I give thanks. And if you listened while I read, what did Jesus do before both the bread and the cup? He gave thanks, and that's why it's called that. It's a time of giving thanks. Today, though, the Eucharist usually refers to the Catholic practice of communion, which we'll see is radically different than what we practice. So when I speak today, I'll use interchangeably communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. They'll all be referring to the same thing. There's no distinction. I want to look first at the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And by looking at this, I want to answer the question, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why do we do this? Is it just a tradition? Like so many traditions, we could just set aside. It wouldn't really matter. It wouldn't make a difference in the church. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think you already know the answer. The basic answer is the Lord commanded it. The Lord commanded it. In this passage that we just read, you heard Paul say, this is what I received and I pass it on to you. Do this. Also in Luke chapter 22, right after uh, the verse I quoted earlier, this is what it says. And he took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You can read in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 the other accounts of the Lord's Supper, the institution of it. All of them, though, point to this. The Lord is the one who instituted it. It was not even a creation of the early church or the New Testament church. It was the Lord who created it. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that it is carried on. Paul doesn't say, you got it all wrong. God wasn't telling you, Christ was not telling you to do this. It was just some one-time event. He says, no, you are doing this and you ought to do it. So the Lord commands it. Second, the New Testament church practiced it. The New Testament church practiced it. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had come down, Peter preached the first Christian sermon. And after his sermon, the people cried out, what should we then do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And so... They were added, or on that day, let me just read it, Acts 2.42. Uh, they were baptized 3,000 souls. And there were added that day 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the breaking of bread could technically just refer to having a meal together. We broke bread together. But in that list, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the prayers, I doubt that the breaking of bread was simply eating together. I don't think they devoted themselves to having meals together, any old meals, because they would have done that anyway, and because it's parallel to the apostles' teaching. And fellowship. This is a reference to the Lord's Supper. They took the Lord's Supper together. And then in Acts 20, towards the end of the book, we see it's still their practice. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight, which I promised not to do. But they were gathered together on Sunday, the first day of the week, and it was to break bread. They were gathered together for the purpose of breaking bread. And that's what they did. So that's the purpose. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is because the Lord commanded it, and it is the practice of the New Testament church. It's not a man-made invention. It's not just a ritual. It's not some practice we could set aside and be faithful to the Scripture. If we want to be faithful to the Scripture, we ought to practice it. We ought to recognize it. Second, I want to look at the properties of the Lord's Supper. The properties of the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? What is it? What is it? First, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's a memorial or a remembrance. You heard this as I read in 1 Corinthians 11.25. 25. 
In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. You'll notice in, in verse 26, it's also a proclamation. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it is both a memorial and a proclamation. What else is it? The Lord's Supper is corporate. It is corporate. Corporate meaning of the body. It is a body activity. It is not a solo or private activity, not just for me or just for you. It is for all of us. It's a body, a corporate activity. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul brings this up there. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we partake of it, what are we joining ourselves to? The body of Christ, which means if all of us are joining the body of Christ, who are we with? We're with one another. It is not a mere private activity. It is an activity for the body. That's why it is sometimes called the fellowship of the table or the fellowship of the bread. So the Lord's Supper is corporate. It's not private or individual. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the entire church has to be present for it. So you might ask, is it okay for me to have communion at home? I remember early on uh, in junior high, early high school, I thought to myself, I, I want to participate in communion, and I don't know when the next communion is. I'm going to have it here at home. So I took communion at home by myself. And I think the Lord was gracious. <laughs> he did not strike me. I didn't get sick or ill or die. But I did miss something significant. I wasn't with anyone else. I was alone. And by eating the bread, I'm joining the body. And yet, where was the body? Nowhere. I was alone. And so it's not a sinful thing to do, but it's certainly not consistent with what it is. We would not object in any way for small groups or Bible studies to share in the Lord's Supper. It would not be inappropriate if you were gathered with your friends from the church to stop and say, let's participate in the Lord's table. Let's remember him now. That would be completely appropriate. You just wouldn't want that to replace our corporate gathering. Because we're recognizing as we gather together for the Lord's table that we're all together. We are one. We're part of one body. So the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It is also corporate. 
Third, the Lord's Supper is symbolic. It is symbolic. Now, to understand why I mentioned this, because that might seem obvious to you, we need to turn over to John chapter 6. Turn to John chapter 6, <clears throat> and we'll find, as we read these verses, why we need to clarify that this is a symbolic activity. John chapter 6 and verse 52 and just take these words in as I read them, and you'll understand why there might be some confusion. John chapter 6, verse 52. The Jews then dis disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man... And drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It's not too hard to see from those verses why the early church was accused of being cannibalistic. Taken on the surface, doesn't that sound pretty literal? Eat my body, drink my blood. And that is exactly what the Roman Catholic doctrine says. That the body, the bread, and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. Literally, as you participate in the Eucharist, the bread becomes part of the physical flesh of Jesus Christ. The wine that you drink as it enters your mouth becomes literally the blood of Jesus Christ. Little wonder why when Martin Luther was first taking his communion as a priest, he was terrified. And can you imagine how nervous you ought to be with that cup walking across the sanctuary? What happens if you spill it? What happens, as was the case, mice get into the bread that's already been blessed. They became holy mice. That, that's not a joke. That, that was the decision of the church. This doctrine is known as transubstantiation. It's a $10 word you don't need to remember transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine literally become, are transformed into the body and the blood of Christ. Anyone see any problems with that? If all you had was John 6, would we call them crazy? If that's all we had was John 6, it would be, okay, I kind of see where you get that from here. Maybe. Now, when Martin Luther split from the Roman Catholic Church, he knew this doctrine needed to change. 
He knew that transubstantiation couldn't stand, and here's why. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25. Listen as I, as I read it. You can write, it, write the reference down, or if you want to open, you can, but just listen. For Christ has entered... Uh, let me stop one sec. I'll, I'll connect this for you. If every time I take communion, the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Christ... What is Christ doing at that moment? He is dying again. So every time, and this, this is consistent with the official Roman Catholic doctrine, not every Roman Catholic believes this, but it is the official doctrine. Every time the Eucharist is celebrated, Jesus Christ is sacrificed in heaven again for our sins. Okay? Now, that, that's a pretty radical shift from what you and I think. But what they believe is that literally Christ is being sacrificed again in heaven every time communion is taken. Now, I like how serious that makes communion, but I don't like at all what that means about salvation. It means that Christ has to die repeatedly. Now listen to, to Hebrews 9. I think it will make a little more sense to you. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So where is Christ? He is in heaven. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. What did the high priests used to do? Every year on the day of atonement, they would enter into the holy place and they would offer a sacrifice. They would spill blood that wasn't their own. They didn't have pure blood to offer. So they took a lamb, spotless, without blemish, and they offered its blood on the altar. But how often did they have to do that? Every year. Why? Because none of them was sufficient to take away sins. For by the blood of bulls and goats, no one will be forgiven. No sin is removed. Nor, verse 25 uh, I'm sorry, verse 26. For then, Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. If it was necessary for him to die more than once, he would have had to do it repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Hebrews 9 makes it emphatically clear that Christ is offered once. He died once. He is not repeatedly offered but it is exactly the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that he is dying repeatedly. 
So Martin Luther knew that couldn't stand. And yet, as he read John chapter 6, he felt there's got to be more to this. There has to be more to it. And so he came up with what we call consubstantiation. Another $10 throwaway word. But the Lutheran doctrine was that the bread and wine contain the body and blood of Christ. It did not literally become, but somehow in, with, and under, it was there. And if that doesn't make sense to you, join the crowd. That's why you hear very little of it today. It's also something that he had to invent on his own. There is no passage of Scripture that says anything like that. So the Protestant doctrine is that the bread and wine symbolize the body and blood of Christ. They symbolize the body and blood of Christ. Now, uh, if you're still in John chapter 6, look, look up at verse 47. You, you know the, the rule of in hermeneutics. Always context is king. The right understanding of the passage is the context of the passage. And if you read more carefully John chapter 6, look what you find. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What is he talking about when he says, eat my body and drink my blood? He's talking about believing and coming to him. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. The bread represents the body. The wine represents the blood in communion. And Christ is not talking about that here. He is talking about coming to him for salvation, believing in him. Let me, let me give you just a couple other examples that Jesus says that make it clear this is a metaphor. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. All right. So not only does he become the body and the blood, not only does, is he the bread and the wine, but he's also the light. What does that mean? How do you apply that? Does that mean every time we turn on a light switch, that's Jesus? I think that would probably harm the sunscreen industry. If Jesus is all light, if that's what it's saying, then what do we do with that? Does that mean to turn off the lights is a sin? It's nonsense, isn't it? His point is a metaphor. I am the light of the world. What happens if you walk into a dark room and you turn on the light? Everything that was invisible becomes visible. And Jesus is saying, the world is in darkness. And when I came into it, what did I do? Brought light. Then in, in John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So unless you go through the door, you're not going to heaven. Well, then where's the door? Is it the doors of our church? Is it the front door? Is it the back door? Which door do I have to go through? That's not the point. What's the point? 
Jesus is what you must enter through. So when he says, I am the bread, come down from heaven, you must eat my body and drink my flesh, he's not talking about communion at all. He's talking about believing in him and coming to him, participating in who he is. Then if you flip back to 1 Corinthians 11, I just want to point one thing out. In verse 28, I would think that if transubstantiation were true, then when I ate the bread and the wine, what would I be eating? The body and the blood. But listen to verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Not eat of the body and drink of the blood. I think that is a, an acknowledgement. It is bread. It is wine or the cup. It is not his body. Just a note here briefly. Wine is never actually mentioned in any of the communion texts. Not specifically. But... It is referred to, or what is referred to, is the fruit of the vine. That's mentioned. Technically, grape juice is a fruit of the vine. But we're certain that that's not what they were drinking. Jesus and the apostles, along with the New Testament and early church, used wine in their communion service, not grape juice. I and the elders uh, would not have any theological problems with wine being uh, participated in at the Lord's Supper. There wouldn't be a problem there. Now, there are problems in people's individuals' consciences that might tell them, I can't drink wine, I don't want to do that. There certainly would be a place for someone who had taken the vow of a Nazarite not to drink the wine. That was forbidden. They couldn't drink of the fruit of the vine. And so what we have is basically an accommodation. We've said, number one, what, well, what, did the, what did the Corinthians, what did some of them end up doing at the Lord's table? Some went hungry and others were drunk. Now that tells you two things. One, they were drinking wine, not grape juice. And two, they were drinking out of real cups, not the little ones. And at the end of this section, Paul, Paul says something pretty, pretty interesting. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Now, as I read through this, you probably got the feeling, and you're right, that this was more than just a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. It was probably an entire meal because some of them were gorging themselves, and you can't get drunk quickly on a little cup. So this was a full-blown meal. But now what Paul says at the end of this is, if you're hungry, eat at home. And what I think he does by saying that is he alters the way that they were celebrating communion. He says, I want to avoid this gluttony and I want to avoid the possibility of drunkenness. So if you're hungry, eat at home. If you're thirsty, drink at home. Which tells me that making a change like that is probably not sinful. Using grape juice eliminates the possibility of anyone getting drunk. Now that's not a proof. I'm not saying you shouldn't use wine. I'm just saying that's, 
one of the reasons we do it. There's also some legal potential problems if we're serving wine to people under 21. So that's why we do that, and I think we would be open to considering an alternative, but that's why. <clears throat> Next, I want to look at the participants of the Lord's Supper. Who is this for? Who is it for? It is only for those who are part of the body. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When we celebrate communion together, we are saying, I am part of the body of Christ. And so if you're not part of the body of Christ, it would be inappropriate for you to do that. We refer to the local church here like MCC as the body of Christ, and it is the body of Christ. That's distinct from the, what we call the universal body of Christ, and that's made up of everyone who is truly a believer in Jesus Christ. And when we celebrate communion, not only are we joining with everyone here in this room, but we're also joining ourselves and recognizing we're not the only body. We're not the only Christians. There are Christians around the world. There are Christians in Indianola, and there are Christians in Norwalk and Des Moines, and we're joining with all of them in a sense as we participate in communion. So we're joining with not only the local church, but also with the universal church. This is one reason why we have what we call open communion. We don't guard the table. We don't have an application for you to fill out before you can participate in communion. If a brother comes in who's visiting and he is a believer in Christ, join us. Join us. We're happy to have you join us. Let me address quickly two questions that are related to this. Uh, first, we, we would, in the matter of church discipline, potentially refuse someone communion. Now, if you've heard of church discipline referred to as excommunication, that's exactly what it's referring to. They're taken out of communion. And so if we have said to a person, you are not part of this body, we cannot have you here, you're leaven, you must be removed, 1 Corinthians 5, then it would be inappropriate for such a person to join with us in communion because we have said, no, you are not in communion with us. Other than that, it would basically be an open table. Second, Probably some of you are grappling with this right now. When is it a good time to allow your children to join in communion? Uh, let me just say as a disclaimer, this is a matter of conscience. This is not a law. This is not an official MCC policy. We do not think you're sinning. We are not condemning you if you disagree with this. But take a step back for a moment and ask, how do you know if someone's part of the body of Christ? How did they know that 3,000 people were added on the day of Pentecost? What initiates a person into the body of Christ? Is there a sign that says this person is a part of the body? Answer, yes, baptism. Baptism. They knew 3,000 souls were added on the day of Pentecost because 3,000 people were baptized. Baptized. 
They were all baptized. So baptism is the sign that says a person is brought into the body of Christ. Communion is a sign that you are part of, you are participating in communion. So as a simple answer, again, by way of of conscience, a recommendation, not a law, if your child isn't yet ready to be baptized and make a public profession of faith, then it might be a little too early to think about them having participate in communion. And if you hold off on letting them participate in communion, you are not robbing them of something. Remember what Paul says. All of his warnings are to those who are participating, not those who are not. If you bring them into communion too early, it is possible they would suffer the discipline of the Lord. That's a recommendation. Second, who is it for? It is only for those who have rightly prepared for it. And that's what we'll turn our attention to in the last couple of minutes. First, how to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Be sure that you are a believer. Be sure that you are a believer. I've already referred to that. But listen to 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Listen to this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. What he says is, examine yourself, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. There is a chance you will fail the test. If you fail the test, what does that tell you? You are not a believer. But this examination of yourself ought to be a regular part of our lives. We ought to be regularly examining ourselves and asking ourselves, what in my life is not pleasing to the Lord? Second, eat and drink worthily. Eat and drink worthily. So first, make sure that you're a believer. Second, eat and drink worthily or in a worthy manner. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 27, I'm sorry, 11:27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. This is a very serious issue. I can't warn you strongly enough, don't participate unworthily. Don't. Paul says this is why some of you are weak and ill and some have even died. That sort of fear ought to be in all of our hearts as we come before the table. Not because we're scared because we don't know if Christ's death is enough, but because there's a chance that we might participate unworthily. We might bring unconfessed, unrepented sin to the table and so stain it. Third, examine yourselves. Paul says, examine yourself. 
let a person, and this is a shift to the singular, which means it's for each one of us, not us as a whole, but let each one of us examine ourselves. Let each one examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Have you, have you made this a part of your regular practice as you come to the Lord's table? We try to remind you each time we celebrate it, but we must examine ourselves. I'm going to leave that for a second and come back to it. The fourth point is discern the body. That's what the ESV translates in verse 34 or 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that reference to the body is most likely not the body of Christ. Otherwise, it would be without discerning the body and the blood. So it is most likely a reference to the church. And what he means is this. If you read the rest of uh, the, the section, what the Corinthians were doing is they were coming and acting as though the Lord's Supper was just for them. They were the only ones that mattered. That's how they were acting. What were they failing to recognize? That they were part of a body. And so as we participate in communion, we have to recognize that we're not alone. We're part of a body. So have you sinned against somebody who is in the body? Have you this week gossiped about somebody you don't like? Or have you been bitter towards someone in your heart? Or have you failed to minister to somebody who is in need? We are a body. What, what does the hand do when the foot has an itch? It scratches it. The hand doesn't only scratch itches on the hand, it scratches itches all over the body. The body serves itself. And we're members of one body together. We're part of one another. And when one suffers, all suffer. And when one rejoices, all rejoice. So let us look to celebrating with one another the joys and the sorrows of life. Are you recognizing as you come to the Lord's table that you are not alone, but you are part of the body? So rightly discern the body, and then you will not drink judgment on yourself. Now, I wanted to just jump back as, as a final point <clears throat> to examine yourself. And to do that, I want to offer you a simple suggestion for how to do that. Paul, in chapter 10, gives us an excellent summary of how to examine ourselves. Chapter 10, verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And here's a simple checklist. Are you guilty of these things? And I'll tell you what to do with it if you are. Are you guilty of these things? Verse 7, do not be idolaters. Are you guilty of idolatry? Are you guilty of idolatry? I don't think anyone in this room is bowing down to golden images at their home. 
But I do think that all of us are guilty of worshiping that which is not God. All of us are guilty of putting other things, other people above the Lord. And if we have, we are guilty as idolaters. We're guilty. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. Are you guilty of sexual immorality? Are your relationships pure? Are your eyes pure? Are the thoughts of your heart honoring to the Lord? If they are not, now's the time to deal with it. Now's the time to get right with the Lord. Then look at verse 10 or verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test. And we must not grumble as some of them did. Are there any grumblings in your heart? Have you been complaining to the Lord? And if you have, now's the time to deal with it. So just take those three or four simple things and ask, have I been guilty of idolatry? Have I been guilty of sexual immorality? Have I been guilty of putting Christ to the death or of grum- to the test or grumbling? And if you have, this is what you do. Bring it before the Lord right now. And confess it to the Lord. And 1 John promises us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Communion is not a time for condemnation. It's a time for restoration. But if we go through this without examining ourselves, then the Lord will discipline us. And so let this be a time to remind ourselves of what the Lord has convicted us of. And as we do that, he purifies our own lives. He brings us restoration and hope. And we realize that we are connected to the body, that we are not islands. We need one another. And thus we are purified. God's body, Christ's body is purified. We get the joy and he gets the glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for this practice, for this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. As we celebrate it, I pray that we would each examine our hearts and that we would humble ourselves under your hand so that you may lift us up in due time. May this be a time to be restored, not condemned. May it be a time not for judgment and discipline coming from the Lord, but may it be a time of purification in our own hearts, through your spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen.